welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, November 4th, 2018, on the basis of John chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. How consistent is the way that you live with the things that you say you believe? It's been observed, and I think rightly so, that people who approach life from the viewpoint of secular materialism, in other words, these are people who would say that there is no God, that there's no such thing as the supernatural, that the only thing that is real is what we can see and touch, that there is no life beyond this one. People who approach that approach life that way often live in a way that is completely inconsistent with it. In other words, they say that there is no God, but they, they live as though there is. So, for example, November is the month when we celebrate Thanksgiving. We take time out of our schedules to sort of count the blessings that we have received and then to express our our gratitude for them. But that sort of raises a question, doesn't it? Gratitude to whom? From the viewpoint of secular materialism, this whole concept of gratitude, of being thankful, really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or take the concept of free will. According to secular materialism, you and I are nothing more than the product of all the chemicals that are running around in our bodies and the evolutionary processes that put them there. And so according to secular materialism, free will is really an illusion. And when it comes to the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis, we don't really have a say in the matter. And yet we talk about choices all the time, don't we? People talk about the importance of making good choices and making bad choices, but if free will is an illusion, then none of that really makes any sense. Finally, what about the whole issue of morality? According to secular materialism, there really isn't a a universal objective standard or definition of right and wrong because there's no one to give that definition. And yet we're told all the time, aren't we, what's right and what's wrong and how we're supposed to live. We're told not to oppress the weak, not to take advantage of the vulnerable, not to exclude or treat poorly someone who is different from us or disagrees with us, but that too sort of raises a question. Why should we do any of those things? Who says that we should do any of those things? According to secular materialism, universal calls for morality don't really make a whole lot of sense. Okay, but what about us? Enough about the inconsistency of people who maybe don't believe in God. What about the inconsistency of the people who do? That's sort of the big idea behind the series that we are starting today. You see, we as Christians believe in our own set of things too, of course, don't we? We believe that this life isn't all that there is. We believe that after this life, there's another life to come, an eternal life. In fact, we believe that we will live forever. In fact, we say it all the time. It's in both of the creeds that we speak here in church. We believe in the resurrection of the life of the body and the life everlasting. But do we live that way? Do we put that into practice? Does that affect the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis? Does it help us as we face life's challenges? Do we live as though we are going to live forever? As we start that series today, the verses that are in front of us are really a perfect place to start because they once again confront us with this wonderful and comforting truth. And in so doing, they really provide us with a starting point for evaluating whether or not we are live living our lives consistently with our beliefs. They give us a good opportunity to look down at our own feet and see where we are standing. You see, sometimes people who look at that viewpoint of secular materialism will say that often people are standing with their two feet firmly planted in midair. 
In other words, they're living as though there's something underneath their feet, something for them to stand on, and yet the very foundation on which they're standing, they themselves have taken out and removed. So, so what about us? Where are our feet firmly planted? What is our foundation? What are we building our life upon? No, this life isn't all that there is. No, death is not the end for us. Yes, we will in fact live forever. And so, don't live like you already have one foot in the grave. We pick it up in these verses, sort of right in the middle of the action, in this important event in the life of Jesus. The little 30-second recap that sort of gets you up to speed goes like this. There were three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they lived in a city called Bethany, which we need to know is right outside of Jerusalem. So anything that happened in Bethany, they would have heard about eventually in Jerusalem. Three sisters, Suddenly one, or I'm sorry, three siblings, suddenly the brother Lazarus becomes seriously ill. So Mary and Martha call for Jesus. Maybe he can help. But rather than coming right away, rather than swooping in to save the day, Jesus delays. And so as a result, Lazarus dies. Now several days have passed. And finally, Jesus arrives at their house. Jesus arrives on the scene where they are mourning his loss. And as we pick it up in these verses, the thing that John, the gospel writer, wants us to be paying very careful attention to are the tears. Mary falls down at Jesus' feet, weeping. Other friends, other family who have gathered there are weeping as well. John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus notices their weeping and he wants us to notice it as well. But what's there to notice about these tears? Isn't exactly what you'd expect? Isn't it completely natural to expect crying at the death of a loved one? Well, have you ever stopped and asked yourself where those tears come from? You see, we're told all the time that death is normal, that death is natural, that death is just a part of life, a fact that we should accept. So why do we act so surprised and so sad when it actually happens? I know it's because we miss the person, but trust me, there's a whole lot more to it than that. The reason that death still saddens and surprises us so much, even though it's happened billions of times, even though it's the most predictable thing that there is in life, is because deep down we know it wasn't supposed to be this way. Deep down we know that we were created for something different. Deep down we know that we should, in fact, live forever. That's why death still makes us so sad. That's why death still takes us by surprise. That's where these tears are coming from. In fact, Jesus sort of validates the tears by noticing them. And John tells us that he's deeply troubled and moved in his spirit. In fact, think about all the things in life that make absolutely no sense if we shouldn't live forever. If this life really were all that there is, and if we allowed that fact to sort of permeate every single corner of our existence, what exactly would that look like? Think about your work. And not just if, if that's an actual job, but whatever it is that you spend most of your time doing, whether that's going to school or managing a family, whatever the case might be. Think about the time and the energy, the heart and the soul that you pour into that work. And yet the reality is, that unless you end up being the next Steve Jobs or the next Adolf Hitler, give it a few years, and no one is going to remember a single thing that you did in your life. 
And yet, what are you going to do bright and early tomorrow morning? You're going to get up and do it, just like you did last week. You're going to put up with the long hours. You're going to put up with the high stress. You're going to put up with the lack of sleep and the frustration. Doing it is whatever is your work. Why? If we aren't so part of something bigger than just this life, that makes absolutely no sense at all. You might as well quit tomorrow. Or think about the amount that we sacrifice for people that we love. Think about the sacrifices that you make in a marriage, for example. Think how often you let your spouse have it her way. Think how often you give something up for yourself because of your commitment to her. Think of how much you sacrifice for your children. Think of the, the time, the energy, the money that you put into them from the time that they are born, even before they're born, until they move out of the house and start a family of their own, sometimes even years after that, right? Does any of that make sense, if this life is all there is? The reality is that give it a few years and not only are you going to be gone and forgotten, but they're going to be gone and forgotten too. So what kind of investment are you making? What sense does that make? Why do all of that? Why sacrifice all of that for someone who is going to spend the next million years serving as nothing more than warm food? You see, deep, deep down, we know better. We know different. We know that death is not normal or natural or something that we should just expect and be satisfied with. We know that death is an unwelcome, uninvited intruder into the way that God intended it to be. We know that we should live forever. So do you think we will? It's kind of the other hard part of it is that deep down we know that we have no right to expect to. Deep down, we also know that left to ourselves, we would have no hope to. It's another part of what makes death so difficult, is that deep down guilt and shame, because we know at the end of the day, it's our fault. Sin is the cause of death. The heart disease, the cancer, whatever else it might be, those are just inc incidental instruments along the way. Sin is the real cause. And so what a hopeless existence that would be knowing that we should last forever, but knowing that we have no hope to, and knowing that we are the reason we are not going to. And so thankfully, along comes Jesus. Even if a little bit later than what the sisters wanted him to come, along comes Jesus, and he's going to make it all better, right? It might seem a little bit odd that we're going to answer that question of, will we all live forever by looking at this incident in the life of Jesus with this one man named Lazarus? Because it sort of seems as though this is just one thing that Jesus did for one guy on one day. And in fact, even Lazarus didn't live forever. Eventually, he was back in that grave as well. And yet, there's a lot more going on here than just one miracle on one day for one person. And we need to pay very careful attention to that as well. First of all, we need to notice how eventually there are more tears. It's not just Mary. It's not just the women. And Jesus doesn't just notice that other people are crying. Eventually, Jesus cries too. See, Jesus is not simply someone who sort of stands back and observes us, watches the suffering and the heartache that we go through because we should last for, live forever, but we're not going to. And then, then he sort of feels bad about it. No, Jesus is someone who came to this earth to cry with us to take everything that isn't the way it was supposed to be and to take it on himself, to take sin and all of its consequences and bear that load on his own shoulders. And so Jesus comes and he weeps too. Jesus came to bear that burden for us. 
And of course, he came to make it all better. And so even though it had been four days, even though Martha was concerned that if they opened the tomb, the thing that would come out would not be Lazarus, but the awful smell that he had been decaying, even though it had been four days, Jesus demonstrated his power over death. With a single word, he brings Lazarus back to life. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. But again, there's more that we need to notice. This wasn't just one man on one day. We need to notice again that this happened in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. We need to notice that there were all kinds of people who saw this miracle and many more who would have heard about it. We need to notice also what comes next that we didn't hear about in these verses, that John tells us that after this miracle, we're told that many, many people came to believe, believe in Jesus, as you might expect that they would. But we're also told that this was the last straw for Jesus' enemies. That as a result of this miracle, and as a result of the increased popularity that it caused, they resolved themselves more firmly than ever that Jesus had to die. And they began their final plot to make sure that it happened. Jesus isn't just raising from the dead one man on one day. By doing this miracle, Jesus is guaranteeing that the day of his death would soon, soon come. By bringing Lazarus out of his grave, Jesus guaranteed that very soon he would be in a grave of his own. And of course, that's the grave that really matters, right? Because the reason Jesus was in that grave was because he was bearing the sins of the entire world, including yours and mine. And when Jesus came out of that grave, that was the guarantee that one day you and I will as well. Yes, friends, in Jesus, we will live forever. In fact, that's what Jesus had said just prior to these verses. He had said it to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. The one who believes in me, that's it. That's all that's needed, that's all that's required. To trust Jesus and his work for us. The one who believes in Jesus is a saint in God's sight and therefore is entitled guaranteed the full blessings of what that means, including a resurrection from the dead. In Jesus, we will live forever. So what does it look like to live that way? We're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks because here's the funny thing about us. We pour all kinds of time and energy, all kinds of heart and soul into our work because we sense that we should live forever and yet the sad irony is that so often all that we pour into our work is for things that just concern the here and the now. And yes, we make sacrifices and we give to people that we love, our spouses, our children, because we sense that we should live forever and yet so often those sacrifices are for things that just concern the here and the now. And so we'll be talking about those things in the next few weeks, but for today, we'll focus on just one. The one that is most immediately related to these verses in front of us. What does it look like to live as though you'll live forever when you're the one mourning? When you're in the spot of Mary or Martha or Jesus, whose good friend Lazarus was as well. 
What does it look like to mourn as someone who knows that they will live forever? You see, if, if we weren't going to live forever, then the tears would, would hardly come. If we could really believe that this life is all there is and death is just normal and natural. But if we weren't going to live forever, then the tears would never stop. They would control us and consume us. And so as we remember on this All Saints Day, those who have already died in Christ, yes, in many cases, I'm guessing we still weep. It's a good day to do that. And yet, because we know that we will live forever, we are able to cry as no one else can. We're able to cry with smiles on our faces. We're able to cry knowing that one day all the tears will be dried. We're able to say goodbye to those we love, knowing full well that we will one day see them again and never have to say goodbye. You see, even when that evil, awful, awful intruder death marches right into our life and takes away from us someone we love, even when it seems as though our day for entering the grave is close at hand, even then we don't have to live with one foot stuck in the grave. Instead, even though one day both of our feet will be in the grave, you and I get to live in the certainty of knowing that one day both of those feet will walk right back out. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.